Amen and amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Grab your copy of God's Word. Turn with me to Acts chapter 14. I want to just uh, say it's a little bit cold in here to me today. Uh, and for those of you who were with us last night at the ball game, uh, you walked in, it's, it's a chill in this room right now. Uh, it was warm out there yesterday, but we had such a great time. Thank you all so much for coming. We had about five rows dedicated to Crossroad Church there at the ballpark and had a fantastic time. Really want to just say thank you to Roger Albrecht for really running that. He, he really, from the beginning, his idea, he put it all together, made it all happen. So if you see him, don't let his head get too big about it, but just tell him that you appreciate him uh, serving in that way. Also, I uh, want to remind you, tomorrow is the last day that you can register for the Together Conference. And I want to encourage you, if you haven't done that and you've been thinking about it, please join us. We think it is going to be an incredible, life-changing weekend. And when we say weekend, we're really only talking about a few hours Friday night and a few hours Saturday morning. So we're not going to take your entire weekend, but we believe that it will be worth your time. It's $20 per person, a little bit more if you need help with child care, but you can go to crossroad.live and click, click the link to go and check out how to register for that. So please do that if you haven't done it. We're going to have a really cool weekend next weekend and excited for you to be a part of that. Hey, uh, guys and girls, we're excited to have you in the room today, a family Sunday. Uh, I, I love having kiddos in the room and teenagers in the room. Uh, I know that the teenagers got here and were just overjoyed to see that they would get to listen to me preach today. Right, guys? All right. Listen. <laughs> I had, they, I had a group of people call, and I traveled 10 hours specifically for my communication skills to about four or 500 youth, uh, but a, a pastor is not without honor except with his own youth group. So I uh, hope you guys enjoy this sermon. It's specifically for you guys. Uh, I want you to know, moms and dads, uh, with kiddos in the room, we love it, all right? So don't be discouraged if they're making a little noise and stuff. We, we are glad that they are here. I'm only worried about this front row, and I'm not talking about these guys. I'm talking about Sandy. So behave yourself, Miss Sandy, all right? Uh, so, hey, we're in Acts 14. We're talking about what it means to live a gospel-driven life. And, and the Word of God has been kind of leading us on this journey in the midst of a culture that is constantly tempting us to, to listen to the people around us, to gauge our lives by the response of the crowds, the call of Scripture is going to be to consistently keep our eyes, our hearts, and our minds set on the gospel and to let Jesus be the one who leads, guides, and directs our lives. So last week we talked specifically about what it means to respond to opposition. And we saw that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. Amen? The gospel is the power of God for salvation. We don't need anything else. And as the gospel was proclaimed, the Lord blessed gospel work. But what we also saw in the text is that the gospel will always have opposition. There is always going to be opposition, and the gospel is always going to divide. The gospel is going to make it clear those who are in Christ and those who are not. It separates us from the world by its very nature, and it creates conflict among people, including even sometimes the people of God. But one of the reasons I wanted to teach this text in successive weeks is because we have a really interesting contrast happening here. Last week, we really were talking about opposition. The people responded to the gospel with violence, and they opposed it. But today, we're going to see the opposite of that happening. But how would Paul and Barnabas respond to people applauding? And how can we see how the gospel cuts through the noise of the world's applause and adulation 
in our culture. That's what we're going to do. We're going to see that here in the text. Uh, So a little bit longer text to read today. Last week we did verses 1 through 7. Today we're going to read through 8 through 20. And then keep your Bibles open because we're actually going to check out a couple more verses toward the end of our message. So here we go. The Word of God, Acts chapter 14, verse 8. In Lystra a man was sitting who was without strength in his feet, had never walked, and had been lame from birth. He listened as Paul spoke. After looking directly at him and seeing that he had faith to be healed, Paul said in a loud voice, Stand up on your feet. And he jumped up and began to walk around. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted, saying in the Lyconian language, The gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas, they called Zeus, and Paul, Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the town, brought bulls and wreaths to the gates because he intended with the crowds to offer sacrifice. The apostles Barnabas and Paul tore their robes when they heard this and rushed into the crowd shouting, People, why are you doing these things? We are people also just like you, and we're proclaiming good news to you that you turn from these worthless things to the living God who made heaven, the earth, the sea, and everything in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to go their own way, although he did not leave himself without a witness, since he did what is good by giving you rain from heaven and fruitful seasons and filling you with food and your hearts with joy. Even though they said these things, they barely stopped the crowds from sacrificing to them. Some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. Remember these guys from last week? And when they won over the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, thinking he was dead. After the disciples gathered around him, he got up and went into the town. And the next day, he left with Barnabas for Derby. That's not the Derby uh, locally, just for the record. Let's pray and ask the Lord to bless the reading and teaching of his word. God, we come to this text asking you to do what only you can do, and that's speak to us. So by your Holy Spirit, would you just communicate your truth in a way that we can grab hold of it today? From the youngest, littlest ones in here all the way to the oldest, Lord, we know that you have a word for us. So speak to us, God. We're listening. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, there's a lot happening here, and I think probably the best way for us to tackle this is really to kind of look at it scene by scene. And the first scene that we come across in Acts 14 is a miraculous healing. A miraculous healing. You might note that this encounter is very similar to the one that we see in Acts chapter 3, where John and Peter heal a lame man who couldn't walk. Do you remember this story? Uh, Some scholars would even suggest that perhaps Luke is trying to use this to to point back to that to affirm the apostleship of Paul. And, And maybe that's true, but here's what we know the Holy Spirit is leading and guiding and directing Luke as he writes the gospel here, not the gospel, but it is kind of a continuation of the gospel here in Acts. Uh, and we know that Paul did have this gift of healing. Uh, it's, it's established throughout the book of Acts uh, under the direction of the Holy Spirit. He is healing people in incredible ways. In fact, the power of the Lord was with him in what I would consider a very special way. Now, I would just note to you today that I don't believe that this specific gift of healing is active in the same way that it was in Paul's life. Now, now, can the Lord heal? Yes and amen, right? He, he does it. We've seen it. Should we pray for healing with faith as the scriptures direct us to? Yes and amen. We have seen God work. But if you see some dude trying to like sell magic bottles of water and hankies online for you to be healed, uh, you need to run. 
All right? You need to run. That's outside of the bounds of what Scripture teaches us. And if you have a problem with that, feel free to email me at brad at crossroad.live with any dissension. So you're going to see in verse 9 that Paul looks at this man who's never been able to walk. And this man, by the way, has heard the message from Paul. And that message is what? The gospel. He's not ashamed of the gospel. Verse 9 said he listened to Paul. So what I want you to understand here is the order of this. This wasn't a healing in order that he might be saved. But he had been saved, and this healing comes really to bear witness and authenticate what God was doing through the power of the gospel. And i got to be honest, this next line absolutely trips me out. Paul looking at him and seeing that he had faith to be healed. Like Paul, this apostolic gifting that God had given him could look at the guy and said, yeah, he's got faith to be healed right now. And in that moment, he looks at him and he says, get up. That's the rusty paraphrase version. So this guy who has never walked in his entire life, he has been lame from birth, gets up. Can you imagine the pandemonium in that area? Can you imagine the scene that breaks out in that moment? I want to remind you guys, this isn't just a cool little Sunday school story. This actually happened. This wasn't like, yeah, I just got a little foot pain and they prayed over me and I feel like it went away a little bit. No, he had never walked and he jumps up and it says he is jumping, celebrating, praising God. It's an incredible miracle. But I want you to notice what happens here in the text. The narrative shifts from this miraculous healing to what we're going to call an idolatrous response. Verses 11 through 13 says the crowd is so amazed, they're so in awe of what's happened, this healing moment that's come, that the text says they were amazed by what he had done. That's important, right? It didn't say they were amazed at the truth of the gospel. It didn't say that. Instead, they saw this miracle and they were excited. They were fired up. So they weren't responding to the gospel. They were responding to this healing. And they responded by saying, wow, these dudes are definitely gods. So they, they just assume, like, kind of the predominant god of the day is Zeus, and since Paul's the one talking, you're Hermes, because that's a spokesperson for our fake god, and you're our fake god Zeus, but they didn't think they were fake. They thought they were real and had come down in human form. So they are fired up, so much so, that the priests to these fake gods, they're bringing animals to the gates of the city where all this is happening, and they're like, we're going to have a church service right here, we're sacrificing to these gods, this is an incredible moment, we're super excited that you guys are here. Now, I would tell you that this is a pivotal moment in the ministry of Paul and Barnabas. Now, I do not think for a second that these guys were tempted to uh, fall into and absorb and take this adulation and applause. But could you put yourself in their shoes for just a moment? Don't you think it would have been easy to be like, well, listen, they're, they're new believers, right? They just don't understand everything yet. This is a little much, I get it, but, but we'll kind of coach them along and slowly unpack uh, the reality of what's really happening here. And, you know, a little honor feels a little good, doesn't it? I'm the only one who likes that, apparently. <laughs> this isn't what Paul and Barnabas do, though. Instead, we see in the next scene a gospel correction 
to an idolatrous response, a gospel correction. So in the midst of a loud culture, friends, whether it's applause or opposition, can I tell you what's required? We said it last week, proclaiming the gospel requires boldness. So they boldly proclaimed the gospel. Do you know how they did it? It said they ripped their clothes. That's a little weird. We don't really do that in our culture today. I remember when I was in high school, I was the only one who laughed uh, during the screening of the Passion of the Christ. Uh, I know, I'm your pastor, it's fine. And it was when the dude tore the clothes. And I was like, what is this dude doing? You know, I knew it, but it's just so absurd in our culture. Like when you get mad, your response isn't to go, you know, it's like rip your shirt. Uh, So some of you are still judging me. It's all right, get over it. Get over yourselves, all right? Let me be 16 at one point in my life, all right? So this is what they do. They, they want to demonstrate this is culturally and even in their religious backgrounds, this is to show their severe disagreement with what is happening. So they tear their garments several inches down their chest. They rush into the crowd, it says, and as they're rushing into the crowds, they say, stop it. Like you are doing the exact opposite of what we're preaching. We're trying to preach to you to turn from these wicked ways and stop what you're doing. You're doing the very thing we're preaching against. And I want you to see this beautiful gospel presentation happening in the text. In verse 15, Paul describes the vanity of their gods, the foolishness of this way of life. He's exposing their need for a savior. And then in verses 16 and 17, he's describing this God who has intentionally, by his grace, revealed himself to all people, past, present, and future. And we don't see talk of the cross of Christ in these verses, but we can assume, rightfully so, that he is pointing back to the gospel presentation that's already happened. You say, well, how do you know that happened, Rusty? Because of verse 9. This lame man responded first to the proclaimed gospel. So he is proclaiming the gospel to them in beautiful ways in this moment. But verse 18 says, no matter how hard they preached, how much they tried to correct the crowd, they continued trying to sacrifice. But as we know from this text and even last week's message in particular, people are fickle. If you're trying to please people, it's tough because it's a moving target. So this scene moves as the people change their mind from applause to opposition. From applause to opposition. Verses 19 and 20, the Jews from Iconium and Antioch, they show up and they turn the crowd against the disciples. You remember they tried to do this last week. We're going to get in there. We're going to stone this guy. We're going to get rid of him. We're going to fix this problem. And the Lord reveals this plan to them and they're able to get out of Iconium. But now Iconium catches up to him. They turn the crowd against him, and Paul is stoned. They drag his body outside the gates and leave him there for dead. It's wild, isn't it? Yet this is what happens. Luke doesn't say how. Luke doesn't describe the scene. I'd like a little more detail here. Can I just say that? Was he dead? Or did they just think he was dead? I I don't know. But whatever happened, the Lord miraculously heals Paul, who has this gift of healing. Now the Lord gifts him and heals him in this moment. They gather around him, they pray, he gets up, and then the wild note went back into the city. I wonder what those people thought when he came walking back in. It's incredible, isn't it? In spite of opposition, in spite of the applause, then opposition again, they go to the next city. The mission trip moves forward. These men are driven by Jesus and his gospel and the mission that he's called them to. And there's a huge principle for the church that I want us to see today. 
Before we look at uh, this last little text and have some really, I think, encouraging applications for us as the people of God, can I challenge the people of God first? Whether you want it or not, here it comes. The gospel should drive the church. Amen. The gospel should drive the church. And, and here's what I mean by this. People responding to the show is not the same as people responding to the gospel. People responding to the show is not the same as people responding to the gospel. We, we have to be careful, church family, to measure the right things. Just as individuals can find themselves living for the applause and the adulation of the crowd, so churches can find themselves living and striving to gain the attention and the affection of the crowds. Entire churches have built themselves on trying to cater to the culture in a supposed attempt to reach people for the gospel. The intention is good, but the method is dangerous. So we try to take the controversy out of the gospel. The gospel is naturally going to cause controversy. The gospel is naturally going to divide. The gospel is naturally going to bring opposition. But we want to take all of those walls down. And can I tell you what happens? You tear the walls down, you're actually tearing down the foundation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this happens faster than you know. Try to make it less awkward. We build our worship services around the world and around people, even church people, instead of the Lord in His presence. This happens very quickly, friends. And here's what I would just tell you, real talk, it works. It works. Like, look around our world today, look around our city today. There are mega monuments to the success of the man-centered approach to church all around our city. And what I'll tell you, friends, is it's not just big churches. Some of y'all are like, oh, here he goes again. I'm, listen, I'm talking small churches and even churches our size who, if we're not careful, we try to follow the models of the bigger churches around us, trying to do the things that are making the big churches big churches. And I would argue that if we're not careful, we let people drive our church instead of the gospel of Jesus Christ drive our church. And this happens before you even know it. So hear my heart, church. Do not let this happen. We must let the gospel drive our lives. Now, to be clear, I'm not saying that we can't have good music, we can't have quality production, fun events, outreach opportunities, yes and amen to all that, but at the end of the day, we cannot build our church around trying to cater to people. We cannot dance to the rhythm of our culture, the rhythm of the church culture, even, of our city. Instead, we must boldly be a church that proclaims the gospel. And when opposition comes, let it lead us to boldness. When worldly applause comes, let it lead to correction if necessary. See, that's the hard thing. Can I tell you what we do in our like over-pragmatism world, right? That's our first force field. When, when you try to call out trouble in a church, maybe you've been in a church where you've tried to describe this to leadership, you've said, I, I don't know that we're really going the right direction. Can I tell you the first thing you're going to hear? Well, it's working. Look how many people are coming. Can I tell you? Paul and Barnabas could have started a megachurch right there in Lystra. They had the people. 
They had the applause, and they would have had the money. People were bringing them everything. They had everything they needed to build a successful movement, but it wasn't of God. Oh, friends, we must be cautious to let the gospel drive our church. So opposition leads to boldness. Worldly applause should lead to correction when necessary. And even if that leads us to more opposition, regardless of how the chips fall, we continue the mission of God just like Paul and Barnabas. So what does this look like for us? That's a good question, right? So, okay, we've talked about what the gospel doesn't look like when it's driving church. What does it look like for the gospel to drive the church? Well, I think we see a few things that are helpful for us in this text. Read with me just three verses, Acts 14, verses 21 through 23. After they had preached the gospel in that town and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, to Iconium, and to Antioch, strengthening the disciples by encouraging them to continue in the faith and by telling them it is necessary to go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. When they had appointed elders for them in every church and prayed with fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Oh, this text is, blows my mind. Do you remember what's happened in so far? They have been run out of every single one of these towns. They even killed him in one of them. <laughs> right? Like things have not gone well. Common sense would say, chart a new path, try somewhere else. Do something differently than what you're doing right now. No, but instead, they're going back through every single one of these towns. Why? To encourage those who had come to Christ. To strengthen the churches that had started there. They carried the scars and the bruises of gospel ministry, and yet they kept going. I don't know about you, but that encourages me today. That encourages me. And listen, we're not Paul and Barnabas, and by God's grace, we do not face persecution like the early church did. But I do think that there are some things in this text that show us how the gospel should drive our church. And I want to take time really to testify to how God is using these things in our church family today. So what I want to do is look at three ships that we see in this passage. Three ships, you ready? The Nina, the Santa Peri, I don't even know. Uh, <laughs> The first ship we see is discipleship. Notice in verse 21, it says, they made many disciples. And then naturally, on the way back through in verse 22, it says that they stopped to encourage and strengthen the disciples. Friends, this is the work of the church to make disciples. Discipleship. And there's always somebody who says, well, pastor, what about evangelism? If you're doing discipleship right, you're doing evangelism. A disciple is somebody who makes disciples. A disciple is, you're not a disciple if you're not actively engaged in evangelism and making disciples. Some of y'all, that just messed up your day, but let me just say that again. You think, oh, I'm a disciple of Christ. I've changed my life. I'm morally good. I'm doing all these things. You are not a disciple of Jesus if you're not actively engaged in making disciples. This is the basic call of Christ. So evangelism is part of this. Real disciples are making disciples. So Paul and Barnabas, they're proclaiming the gospel. There's evangelism, and then people are saved. So they're going out of their way. Despite the danger, the cost, the time, they're working to strengthen and encourage these brothers and sisters 
Friends, a gospel-driven church is a church that is all about discipleship. I'm so thankful for the discipleship that we see happening at Crossroad. There's so many people right now who are growing in their relationship with Jesus. And it's not just through our intentional discipleship groups, which you know I'm very passionate about. We've got several men and several women right now walking in real discipleship groups with one another. And God is using that in an incredible way. But we are a growing church. And we're not just a growing church in number, friends. We're a growing church in love and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. God is doing a work as we grow in love and knowledge for him. And I would just want to tell you that, that in all of these different ways, God is growing you through your life groups, through Bible studies, through intentional friendships and relationships in our church. We have a church that is growing in discipleship. But let me just commandeer the words of Paul a couple weeks ago in 1 Thessalonians. Even as you are doing, keep going. Even as you're doing this, you're doing a great job in this, but don't stop. Keep going. Don't grow weary in doing the good work of discipleship, church. Hear me. Don't grow weary in doing that. It's easy to get taken captive into the latest and greatest program or cool, trendy ministry idea. Can I just tell you, the gospel doesn't need our creative ideas and programs to grow our church. We need discipleship. We need the gospel. And God is blessing our gospel-driven commitment as a church family. But also we see in this text that a gospel-driven church will encounter hardship. Hardship. Verse 22, Paul and Barnabas offer really a sober warning. It is necessary to go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. The ESV, if you have that today, says tribulations or trials. Hardship is probably our least favorite ship to travel on, isn't it? And, you know, discipleship, maybe some of you this morning, you're like, sign me up for that. That sounds cool. I'd love to be in an intentional discipleship relationship with somebody. That'd be great. But nobody today is going to go to the event station and sign up for the hardship ministry. It's just not going to happen. Yet if we're honest today, haven't we seen the Lord do incredible work in our church family through the hardships we've been through? I know that I haven't been here for long, but even in five years, y'all, we've gone through some things. The old joke goes, you know, when you're talking to young married couples, five years feels like forever, right? <laughs> in five years, we've been through some things. I think about the pandemic. The pandemic was a hardship for all churches. Not only the, the toll of losing people we love, but then just the drama and difficulty of, of trying to lead in that season. And those of you who were here know that, that we went through a very painful staff departure in the middle of that. And for a season, we were actually two staff members down. It was a wild, wild and crazy time. But y'all, the relationships that were built in that season, the closeness that God brought to the core of our church family, and then coming out of that, the, the people that God brought into our church family that we cannot imagine doing church without... Coming out of that season, I, I can just tell you with great confidence that Crossroad Church is actually stronger and healthier because of what we've gone through in the last several years. And, and I know from two decades of our history that that's true for us. And, and why do we know this is true? Not just because you hear our testimonies of it. Do you know how we know this is true? Uh, there's this book called The Bible. Big fan of it. Big fan of it. You should read it. And when we were studying in James chapter 1, it's what the Bible said. 
Consider it joy when we go through trials. Why? Because we know that those trials are driving us to the only place of hope and safety we have, and that's Christ. Trials make us depend on God. Can I just tell you that, that when nobody can come to church, our man-centered methods of building the church are exposed for the absolute foolishness that they are? There wasn't anybody in the summer of 2020 doing a cool at-the-movie series. You know? It just, it just weren't, right? Like, hey, here's our cool, trendy idea. Like, no. It was like, how are we going to get through this? People were looking for real answers. You didn't want Pastor Rusty's 10 most creative summer series sermons. You know what we came for, though? When those doors opened back up and we got to gather together again, you know what we came for? The gospel. And read the Tell us what the Bible says. Show us the only hope that we have. In many ways, we had to rebuild our church. The way we did worship, has changed significantly if you can go back in the last three or four years uh, even some of the style that we preach the way we reach people the way we do programs and ministry a lot of things have changed and by God's grace I can tell you that hardship drove us to the only source of hope that we have as the church of Jesus Christ and that's the gospel and we don't know what lies ahead but I can promise you this hardships will come and those hardships are going to help make us and help us continue to be a gospel-driven church. So when they come, you know what we need to be found saying? Thank you, Lord. Help us, Lord. But thank you, Lord. There's one more ship we need to mention, and that would be leadership. Verse 23 says that as they passed back through the towns, one of their primary tasks was appointing elders to shepherd the flock. Now, you'll notice this wasn't a haphazard process. They didn't go into these new young churches and go, any, many, miny, mo, you're an elder, you know. They didn't do that. <laughs> that last part wasn't even in my notes. It just happened. I, I do have literally written any, many, miny, mo, but uh, you're an elder. Yeah, that's good. Lyle, if I don't do that second service, just say, don't forget here's what will happen though if you've ever sat through both services the second service will look at me like I'm the biggest idiot ever and will not laugh at all that's how that happens you know some one service likes it the other one thinks that I'm me and that's fine but no what happened says through prayer and fasting they called those who would lead the flock I, I want to just tell you friends that we are absolutely blessed at Crossroad Church with an incredible team of leaders. Our, our ministers and pastors, our trustees, our deacons, our life group leaders, our ministry group leaders, our volunteer team leaders, on and on we can go. This church is blessed with incredible leadership. And because of that, the Lord has blessed the gospel work of this church. I'm absolutely convinced of that. And in these past few years, can I tell you what the Lord has done? He's brought us many more people who have the gift of leadership in various ways. And already some of you are plugging in in different ways. And I know that in the years to come, we are going to need those gifts that God has given you. And it's exciting to see you coming with your gifts and your passions. And it's going to be fun to see what God does. We have so much leadership in this church family. But this word here specifically is elders which is referring to the pastors of the church. 
the ministers who lead and guide the ministries of the church. And I want to tell you, we are absolutely blessed. I am absolutely blessed to work with Pastor Rick, with Pastor Lyle, with Miss Audra, with Pastor Brad. You have an absolutely gifted team who loves the Lord, who loves this church, and they are here. I believe God has called our ministry here for such a time as this. So what are we to do in response to our leadership? What does verse 23 say? So they committed them to the Lord. Pray for your leadership. Support them, love them, follow their lead as they follow Jesus and let the gospel drive our lives and our church. We're thankful for the leadership God's given us. So do you know what this work is at Crossroad Church? I'll tell you what this work is at Crossroad Church. It is a gospel work that only Christ can do and only Christ will continue to do. Do you remember what Jesus said? Five words. I will build my church. And Jesus has been doing that work specifically in our local body of believers for two decades and I believe that that is a gospel-driven work that is going to continue but you and I have to be intentional to press into that work. And to do that is going to require boldness it's going to require listening to the Lord and not the crowd. It's going to be letting him and his gospel drive our lives and then our families and then our church family. And if we do that, friends, listen to me, the best is yet to come. Pray with me. Lord, we love you. We thank you for the encouragement of your word and also the challenge of your word. It is so easy for us to listen to the opposition or to the applause of the world and the crowd around us. But Lord, we don't want to build our lives. We don't want to build our families. We don't want to build our church on any foundation other than you and your gospel. So help us to do that. And Lord, that, that starts not with even the leadership of our church. That starts with the individuals in our church being gospel-driven Christians. That starts with these families sitting in this room being gospel-driven families so that when we come together as a church, the natural result is that we are a church that is aligned with you and your mission and your heart for us. Oh, so Lord, I ask that you'd help us. Help us to follow this call and to be who it is you've called us to be.